Ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And we have a very exciting episode of the show for you today with Jeff Zerling over at Sky Mavis, of course, the firm behind Axie Infinity. And yes, this is the third time you've come on the show. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. What's next for digital currency after a brutal 2022? While the core promise of crypto hasn't changed, digital currency is still forming the base layer for a new global commerce infrastructure. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers and even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. It's like building houses. What's the foundation and can you get the foundation right? Throughout Q1, I'm happy to host leaders from Circle here on The Scoop to give listeners the chance to hear how one of crypto's most prominent builders is paving the way for digital currency utility. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. This show is sponsored in part by CleanSpark, America's Bitcoin miner. With CleanSpark, you can feel good about investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem because CleanSpark uses low-carbon energy for their Bitcoin mining data centers and is always optimizing their operations to increase energy efficiency and reduce e-waste, all while partnering with the communities they operate in. If you want to support the future of Bitcoin while also supporting the environment, visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more about the CleanSpark way. It's interesting to sort of have you on each time because I feel like the space changes and sort of the priorities of the firm kind of evolve and change. We saw in the first appearance of you, this was during the Hasleyon days of the play to earn wave. And then I think the second time you came on the show, you talked about the transition to, if I can recall correctly, it was how do we play to play maybe <laughs> or just, you know, change or readjust the incentive structures in Web3 gaming so that it's, you can correct me where I may be wrong. You're playing not necessarily for a financial incentive that's a component, but there's these other things that just make the game more dynamic, more engaging. And now we're actually seeing maybe in this sort of period, actual games starting to come to market. So what's that evolution look like and where are we now? Definitely. Well, thanks for having me again. I mean, so this has been a five-year journey, right? And, you know, everything started with Axie, using that as a core experience to bootstrap a community to get people excited about the potential for this technology. And we built the infrastructure, right, to power Axie. And along the way, we learned a lot. We learned a lot about community. We learned a lot about tokenomics and design and, you know, what it takes from an infrastructural level to make these types of products work. So recently, we made an announcement where you know, we're really delivering on two things that our community are super excited about. One was the upgrade of the Ronin chain to delegate mm -hmm. stake and launched Ron staking, increasing the decentralization of the network and making it really this first chain that was right built by gamers for gamers and now owned by and secured by gamers. Second, which I think is, you know, the very novel thing is that we announced the first batch of game studios that are building on Ronin, right? So we see Ronin as becoming the best place to grow and launch your Web3 game, right? Like you have access to this infrastructure that's battle-tested and proven, you know, that was able to scale to millions of users and accommodate millions of users and get access to this super amazing community that's around 200,000 people that 
have a lot of experience, years of experience playing mm. types of games. And you have access to us, our coaching, our understanding of tokenomics, right? What to do, what not to do. <laughs> we've made the mistakes, right? Like mm-hmm. we've gone through both ups and downs and the teams that enjoy working with us and the teams that have chosen to work with us, right? They see the potential, right? They've seen how far we've been able to take this technology and these types of games so far. We, and I've also respect the fact that we've encountered some of the difficulties, right? We've, it's kind of like... We've gotten to a boss battle that nobody else has really got <laughs> gotten. Mm. Right? And if we fought the boss, did we finish the boss battle? No, there's still a lot of work to be done. But we have insights, right, of getting to that level that other teams just haven't yet. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So how do these different game developers think about the different options at their disposal, right? Because they can obviously build on different types of chains, but they can also just not build in a crypto infrastructure, right? They can just sort of go through the normal process and build out a game. So obviously, everyone's going to have their own journey to maybe finding their way to Ronin, but is there a category of game or company that is fine-tuned for Ronin? How do you think about that? So far, it's been fairly eclectic. But what I will say is a lot of the founders that are looking to build Web3 games, they have experience with games like RuneScape, Diablo, EVE Online, right? Some of the founders of Directive Games, which we just announced to be building on Ronin, were executives at CCP, which is the game studio building EVE. And so I I think that game founders that have experience with these kind of semi-open gray market economies, they see the potential and I think they really get it. I think also game studios that really understand community, right? They might be like indie game developers that understood, you know, the power of leveraging community and see this as a way, see Web3 and the true ownership aspect of a way of, you know, truly, truly incentivizing or aligning incentives with the community and really supercharging that special relationship, right? It's like in the early days when we were building Axie, we were like, what is the status quo of building a game with alongside your community? That's more right in the indie games, right? Like these Kickstarter games, right? What are the Kickstarter games doing well? What are they not doing well? What can we do much better or 10x better because we have this kind of secret weapon? And I think a lot of the founders that are interested in building Web3 game are thinking about the space through that type of a lens. I remember a conversation I had with a founder when I was in Australia. It's my first time visiting the country, and I don't know how we got on the topic, but he said something to the effect of a lot of the most successful technology companies here in Australia basically take, and not just tech, but just in general, companies that are here take what has been sort of successful in the United States and modified for the specific audience. When you think about crypto or the intersection of crypto and gaming, how much of the success will be found in just an entrepreneur sort of thinking about something that's successful like RuneScape, for instance, and saying, okay, let's just make the Web3 version of that. Or will the more successful Web3 games be radically different from a game perspective? Mm -hmm. Like, will there be any sort of evolution or will it be, okay, here's a successful game, now let's sort of plug it into Web3? I think there will be a spectrum of different options. I do think that the best games of a paradigm shift are kind of built for the medium, right? So Mm -hmm. it's like the best free-to-play mobile games, right? They were built (laughs) specifically to be played on phones, Mm -hmm. right? The best console games were specifically built for console, likewise with PC. So I think that the best and most iconic or kind of genre-defining 
Web3 games or blockchain games, whatever you want to call them, will be specifically built for the medium. I also think that there are a lot of games that they may have been great games that are like, hey, they just didn't have that extra oomph when they were built, you know, using old technology. And then it was like, hey, like this game has a solid core loop. It's really fun. Maybe if we infuse some Web3 elements into it, that might be what's needed to make this thing successful. I think there will also be successful case studies involving that type of a situation. So going back to Ronan, you're sort of fine-tuning it. Are there any early examples of success where you're seeing games that really could break through because of some of these changes that you made? It's still quite early, right? So we have just announced last Thursday this first batch of games, but already the response from the community has been amazing, right? So some of these games have become right, the most streamed Web3 games, you know, most talked about on Twitter. The YouTube analytics are rising, right? And so there's just a lot of traction, right? Where, okay, their Twitter followers are doubling or tripling in a week. Their uh, discords are doubling, right? So it's like, I think we're starting to see the types of benefits and it's kind of like services, right, that we can provide as a chain to these game partners. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is that, okay, these other chains, they are providing the infrastructure. But to be honest, we believe that infrastructure will be like increasingly more commoditized. Mm -hmm. And it's like really the unique defining factor will be, can you help with community? Can you actually help these products get actual traction, right? It's like the infrastructure can help make it work, but can the chain help you win, right? That I think is what these games partners are actually really looking for. They want to launch on the infrastructure that's also going to come with a community attached to it. And we're seeing early indications of that being the case with Ronin. So it's like if you build there, there's going to be at least some starting point of an audience with yeah. which you can build. You can get your first 1,000 true fans, right? The golden cohort. Like, you'll still have to be great at building community. You're still going to have to be great at building product. But we can provide that initial, that spark. So this sounds like it's now the focus of the firm going forward to make Ronin as robust as a chain for new games to come into the space through versus maybe improving upon Axie as a game. Well, so I, I think like... Whenever you have a platform emerge in gaming, it always emerges from content, right? Where you have this amazing content, this IP that draws in a community, and then it's like you turn into this platformized approach. But the additional content that comes onto the platform also supercharges the root IP, if that makes sense, right? So one way to look at it is, would Mario have gotten as large as he's gotten without the other games that have been launched through Nintendo, right? Like Donkey Kong, Zelda, Super Smash Brothers, mm -hmm. Sart Fox. <laughs> Axie is still the foundation of our universe, but adding on these additional IPs will help create a larger community. And some of them will also right, discover the joy of Axie, right? So something that we're, we've been seeing is, right, there are people in the Web3 gaming space and there are gamers out there who are like, you know, Axie might not be their favorite and it might not be the IP for them. It might not be the game for them. It might be a little bit too cute for them. But then 
you know, they might engage with a different IP on Ronin, meet the community, and then you're like, oh, my friends play Axie? Well, I guess, you know, I'll also start playing Axie as well, right? Just like you have people who play exclusively Nintendo games, right? And they'll play all the Nintendo games. And you have people who play all the PlayStation games, right? And will play games exclusively in the PlayStation kind of ecosystem. Do you see the chain being the medium in that sense? Like, in the same way that there's the Xbox, there's the PlayStation, there's the Nintendo console, is the parallel in Web3 the chain? Or is it the actual sort of physical device through which we play? Yeah, I think that that is definitely perhaps the easiest way to think about it. There will also perhaps be you know, EVM versus non-EVM, right? And then it's like maybe all EVM stuff is also like more aligned than uh, with non-EVM games. <laughs> that may also be like an alliance that kind of emerges or maybe a type of loyalty that emerges. But yeah, I, I do think that we're, you know, hopefully if there's a market, there will be these kind of console-esque wars between the mm. different chains. But that's only if there will be a market, right? Right now it's mm-hmm. like still so small that, it doesn't make sense for there to even be competition. It's just like people experimenting and seeing what works. How did you get into this again? I mean, personally, so so I grew up as a gamer and a collector. So I grew up in Queens, New York. Mm-hmm. My dad collects fossils and insects, and mm-hmm. my mom is Korean. So I grew up like on the weekends going on these crazy trips with my dad into the wilderness of like New Jersey, Virginia. And my way of bonding with him as a kid was like trying to find the rarest insect or fossil to really catch his eye. At the same time, I was an only child. And so my mom is Korean. I had cousins that were Korean and they introduced me to StarCraft and Diablo. And that's kind of how I got into the whole Blizzard ecosystem. So the first thing I ever did on the internet was play StarCraft. And I was like an old soul. (laughs) I was actually an old soul. So I refused to learn how to type at school uh, until I was like, okay, StarCraft, I need to learn how to type to play this game. So that's actually how I learned how to use a keyboard when I was like maybe six years old. So from an early age, I kind of was a collector and I got the sense that games could be a great way to introduce people to a new technology. Flash forward a bit, I discovered CryptoKitties, right? In 2017, I was, you know, following Ethereum. All my smartest friends from high school were in the Ethereum ecosystem and telling me, you know, the same ones that are now like talking to me about AI, I guess. Some of them even work at OpenAI. But yeah, they they were telling me like, yeah, you got to, you know, you got to get into this Ethereum thing. You need to keep an eye on it. But to me, it was like all very financial and it wasn't really interesting to me. But when I learned about NFTs, I was like, okay, this is at the intersection of collectibles and gaming. Those are my hobbies. Those are my passions. You know, this is something that I could see myself dedicating my life to. So, uh, yeah, I actually found Axie as a community member, (laughs) just started doing work and hoping that it would help. And yeah, basically... By May of 2018, I had given my dog away to my parents and moved to Vietnam. Interesting. And then how'd you find your way to Axie? I started as a community member, right? Got it. Just found it, loved the art, thought that the idea for a game using NFTs just made so much sense. 
The core promise of crypto hasn't changed. Stablecoins can bring faster payments at internet scale, from merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers or even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. USDC is more than just a stablecoin. USDC is also an open source platform. When our transactions are actually final and you can't change them anymore, that's another great quality property of cash because when you switch his hand, it's fine. Right? Can you digitize all those good quality properties and bring that in a digital form? USDC by Circle is at the forefront of this innovation. And that's why The Scoop is partnering with the folks at Circle to tell you guys why and how our industry is moving. A lot of us who have built USDC, myself included and Jeremy included, we are technologists. So we approach this problem from a technology point of view. Visit circle.com slash scoop for more information. Here's a message from our sponsor, CleanSpark. CleanSpark is a NASDAQ-listed company that mines Bitcoin. Basically, they build and operate data centers with tens of thousands of computers that help secure Bitcoin, making it more reliable and secure for anybody, anywhere to use. These computers require a lot of energy, but that's why CleanSpark predominantly uses low-carbon energy to power their machines. But that's not all. They care about the communities where their data centers are located. They create jobs, donate to schools and community centers, and revitalize aging electricity grids in rural parts of America. They aren't just a Bitcoin miner. They're one of the most efficient and sustainable Bitcoin miners in America. Visit www.plainspark.com to learn more. So now you have this sort of cadre of new games building on the platform. What advice are you giving them from the lessons you've gleaned from the Axie experience, the ups and downs as you describe them? Everything from, you know, best practices around social media, engaging with your community, right? How to actually set expectations and, and talk about your roadmap and how to engage on Discord, right? Like talking about some of the early growth tactics and experiments that we ran, right? Like how to use NFTs very carefully as a form of a kind of a Web3 UA budget, right? So mm. one of the theses, right, is that, oh, in Web2, it's like you do user acquisition, you spend a lot of money on Google, Apple, YouTube, whatever, Unity ads, right? There are all these ad networks that you tap into. Right now in Web3 Gaming, those don't really work at scale. But that doesn't mean that you can't think about user acquisition, right? You do have these budgets, right? Those budgets are just tokenized, right? And it's like, how do you think about using those tokens to the maximum advantage and super carefully to basically onboard your first wave of players and community members. Yeah. And then I think like we'll talk to them about the community, right? Like there are a lot of things that to us <laughs> and it might seem obvious and even to Web3 kind of native people might seem obvious about the community, but, you know, might not be to, you know, a team that's kind of just starting to get their feet wet with this new technology. Do you think that NFTs will be part of every game? I don't think so. To your question earlier around, you know, will these games be built to the medium? And so, yeah, the answer is I don't think so. I don't think every game needs NFTs. I think many games could be elevated by tokenizing certain... I'm getting like PTSD from my like sophomore year media course 101 of... The infamous quote from Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. It might break into a sweat. 
<laughs> so yeah, I don't think so. I think that games that are very community-centric and social and that have, I guess, desire from the players for secondary markets around the game items, right? There are certain games, right, where the players are very active and are doing a lot of kinds of secondary market trading activity, and there are others that don't really have that type of an ecosystem, right? So I think it's those types of games, right, where they're social, they're long-lasting, there are certain game assets that have a lot of rarity, those are, I think, the types of games that will benefit the most from integrating this technology. There are certain examples. I mean, we talk about them to the point that it's almost trite, where these in-game assets, people want them so bad, whether it's a skin in Fortnite or a, you know, a weapon in Call of Duty, they can easily or could be NFTs. Well, I guess there's two questions here. Why haven't we just seen them say, hey, we're going to look at this. We're going to maybe try to implement that. That's the first question. Why haven't we sort of crossed that Rubicon? The second question is, do you think there'll be a Web3 based game that finds sort of like Axie level interest, but sustainable before you see a traditional gaming company, at least like become very committed to NFTifying its in-game assets? The large traditional gaming companies, right, until they see more of a market, it's very hard for them to prioritize. You saw what happened with Facebook, right? With Mark. Yeah. Mark actually, right, he made a big risk. Like yeah. that actually, right, it's like innovator's dilemma, right? Trying to basically carve out a new market. And he got hammered for it, right? Like, even though I don't agree with everything, you know, that Facebook does. But I thought that that was actually admirable because it was like yeah. a founder being like, this is the future. We need to pivot towards it. And basically, so far, it hasn't worked out. <laughs> it's clear that it hasn't worked out. I hear that they're scaling back. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that basically, if you're too early to a market as an incumbent, then, mm. right, that, that's basically it, right? It's like you need to time it. And it's so hard to pivot a huge ship, right? It's totally. like, you know, it just takes so much alignment and it's really, really hard. It would have to be like someone like a Tim Sweeney saying, hey, this is the future. We're doing it. Mm -hmm. Shut up. Like, <laughs> but you know, that might backfire, right? It's just so risky for people who actually have millions of users to do that, that I think that it will be really hard until the market is more proven. So I think that the market, it will need to be proven by, you know, kind of Web3 native projects. When you think about the Web3 native projects, what is the medium they're building for? Is it mobile first for the most part, desktop? Our thesis is mobile first, and that mm -hmm. is the most accessible. I never really liked mobile games. Never really played any. They're getting better. I think the lines between, you know, what's mobile, what's desktop, and what's mobile are starting to blur, right? You're starting to see, like, League of Legends. It's just so, it's just so tiny. For sure. Maybe that's my inner boomer speaking. It's happening, Frank. I'm asleep at the wheel. I'm also, you know, a, a bit like that, but I've started to get more into some of the mobile games, like the Supercell games, obviously, Axie, right? So with Axie, we saw, you know, just how powerful it was to be able to onboard you know, people from emerging markets into this technology, right? So it's like our thesis is that actually the places that need Web3 the most are these emerging markets where they have high inflation and unstable financial infrastructure. So we do have this thesis that's like very mobile focused and emerging market centric. How important is the metaverse to this entire storyline? I think that's a North Star, I guess. That's I maybe exciting to think about. But I think the teams that will get us there are just, you know, in the trenches, building and making product decisions based on what they see, the opportunities that they see, what they're hearing from users, 
And I don't think that it will come about, right, in the way that Hollywood envisions it, right? It's like, oh, Hollywood thinks that it's going to be like these Oculus <laughs> VR headsets. I think that that's mm-hmm. too clunky and that's not egalitarian, right? Very few people in the world are going to actually be able to afford those, you know, in the next 10 years or so. So I think that this new wave of gaming that's more empowering, that's more egalitarian, and that provides you know new forms of financial literacy through Web3 education, I think it's not going to be right like through the headsets. I think it's going to be on more accessible devices, likely with a huge proliferation on mobile. Well, Jeff, I feel like every time I try to do any headset game, I end up like bashing my body into a sofa. <laughs> oh, yeah. like I mean, I, I get dizzy. I don't like it. And also, we have glasses, so that adds an impediment. I don't know about you, but whenever I put on the Oculus and it's like, if my glasses aren't like literally right up against my face, I can't see in the game. Like the game is blurry. It's very bizarre. I'm not a fan. It makes me dizzy. So Yeah. What's the interest there? Like, is this one overhyped corner of this segment? When people think about Web3 Gaming, when they think about Metaverse, they immediately think about the hardware. You know, to be honest, I think that it, it is overhyped and that's not a requisite for the next gaming transformations. I also think that it could be like AI, though, where it's like, you know, <laughs> it's people are talking about it. They're like, when is it coming? When is it coming? And then one day it's just like, mm-hmm. it's here and everyone's using it, right? So I also like leave myself as an open-minded person to that possibility. And to be fair, if you look at the data, it seems like sales are starting to pick up. Fair enough. So looking at the sort of cadre of game developers that you're working with, what are some of their headwinds and tailwinds? How are you helping shepherd them, as it were? First, let's just go quickly through the different games, right? So we have directive games. They're building Machines Arena. Think of it as like top-down Overwatch. Um, That game is actually live in closed beta right now. So if you go on Twitter, check out The Machines Arena, you'll be able to see some of the gameplay footage and the feedback has been really amazing so far. And, and some of the execs there actually worked at places like CCP, LucasArts, right? So they you know, have experience working on these big-time traditional titles. Mm-hmm. We also have uh, Tribes, right? So Tribe Studio, they're building Tribesters, which is going to be a social MMO. So this team is very community-centric. They really understand the ethos of what we're doing. And I think that was a big draw to why we wanted to work with them, right? So the art also looks really amazing. They'll be launching more teasers and lore, but it's still quite early in development. We also have a Bali game. So many of them were team members working on a game called Anipong, which actually made over $1.8 billion and had over 130 million downloads. You probably have never heard of it, Frank. Why? Because it's kind of like Candy Crush, but the Korean version of that, right? So it launched through the Korean chat app, Kakao. And so this is another, it's it's maybe not your type of game, but it's like match three. I'm also not Korean. For sure. So it's more like, you know, something my mom would love to play, right? My Mm. mom loves those types of games. So it's like, can we onboard a different type of demographic, like more of like an elderly woman type uh, demographic to Web3? Mm. That would be really special and amazing, right? So that's kind of the thesis there is like, it's a play on on a different demo. And then we have Bold, right? So Bold, they're building like a hyper casual kind of cricket game, right? So cricket is, has like 1.6 billion 
I think like uh, fans across the world, super big in India, they're really targeting mm. the Indian market, 500 million gamers in India. So we can onboard 1% of that market. That would be huge for the entire space. This speaks to something interesting, which is to an extent, Web3 Gaming provides a foundation or the tooling rather for folks in certain areas of the world that may be cut off or far from the resources of mm. traditional gaming they have that access. And so then they can sort of build these games that are really fine-tuned for these demographics that traditional gaming studios aren't building for. For sure. Yeah, I think a lot of the traditional gaming studios are having issues or a hard time breaking into some of these markets, right? They're having a hard time tapping into these emerging markets, whereas that's really our bread and butter. So we find that really interesting and promising. So the last one, Battle Bears, right? So they're building a game called Battle Bears Heroes. So this franchise actually has over 40 million downloads. A lot of our community members were like, wow, like Battle Bears, I played that as a kid. It's a really great IP. I think the art is good, uh, focus on storytelling. And yeah, I played it. I met the team, I played it. It was smooth and it seemed fun. So yeah, I'm really excited for them to start showing product to the community as well. Can we talk a little bit about the tech for a second, right? I feel like a lot of our conversation, it's a unique space in what you're building because you're building in gaming, but you're also building in blockchain, right? So one important component of this is the sort of upgrade to delegated proof of stake. You know, security is super important. In this sector relative to traditional gaming, you can't really have your game assets hacked necessarily in the same way. You can't have a breach in the same way. So can you walk us through sort of the technical component of this? Yeah, sure. It's not too complicated. Basically, we're upgrading Ronin from a POA chain, uh, which is you know backed by the reputations of us and our partners to a delegated proof of stake, where we have a validator system. A portion of them are you know governing validators, and then there's another portion that are basically chosen based on the amount staked. And so we have teams like Google. Quest, Axie Chat, which are, you know, amazing community members. Coco Bear, uh, also a, a really passionate community member. DappRadar, nonfungible.com, and also like Google Cloud, right, is also joined, mm. joined on, right? So I think like a really great alliance between, right, like core community members, but also, you know, some organizations from outside that are really interested in learning more about the space and see this as a cool way to get their feet wet, right? So, you know, just adding basically validators and, and anyone can stake their RON tokens through a validator. So I think like the important thing here and the interesting thing here is that for the last year, the only way to get RON tokens has been by farming it mm -hmm. on this decentralized exchange using your in-game assets, right? Using your access tokens, your SLP tokens, right? So it's like, you're basically, we created this system where you play the game, you can earn these tokens, you then use those tokens to farm the protocol token that's securing the game that you're playing. So we're creating really this network that's really secured and owned by the players that are using it. And I think that's the most important thing. And that's why, you know, the community has been so excited about this upgrade is that right, it has a direct kind of implications for them and you know, allows them to actually stake their tokens and make decisions around, you know, who they trust to actually secure the network that they have worked so hard to, you know, help proliferate. For gamers, by gamers, owned by gamers. I think it's powerful. Sir, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, I'm sending love and strength. It is. It always is. Where can folks who are maybe listening, they want to learn more, where can they go? Where can we send them? 
we just deployed an amazing update to roninchain.com. And that kind of goes through the whole overview of what we're building and why we think it's special. You should follow me on Twitter. That's uh, Jihoz, J-I-H-O-Z underscore Axie, A-X-I-E. Yeah, follow Ronin Network on Twitter. So that's Ronin underscore network, as this was obviously a very Ronin-centric episode. Indeed it was. Sir, thanks so much. Hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Be well, and we'll see you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Frank. Thanks. And The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.